Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Coming up on Primetime Politics, warnings ignored. There's no reason to have so many uh, diplomats with a country that doesn't want to do business with us. We'll speak with a former CSIS official who testified before committee this week. Why were warnings of Chinese interference and disruption ignored? Not just for years, but for decades. Michelle Junokatsuya will join us. Also, we'll speak to our journalist panel and get the latest on foreign interference, including Ottawa's reported move to create a foreign agent's registry either before or just after the summer break. And how have wildfires affected Alberta's short four-week election campaign? We will speak with pollster Janet Brown. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Sarabio. Foreign interference continued to dominate discussions on Parliament Hill this week, with a former CSIS official appearing before committee and testifying it is not just an issue that's dogged this government, but all governments dating back to the 1980s, especially when it comes to the People's Republic of China. Take a listen. Not only the sitting government have been compromised, but all federal political parties have been compromised at one point or another. The inaction of the federal government, all federal governments, were led to attacks on many municipal and provincial government. Ultimately, every government had been part of the problem, not the solution. And, I, and remember, not only China is practicing interference. Well, with more, we're now joined by Michelle Junokatsuya, former CSIS intelligence officer, also former chief of the Asia-Pacific unit at CSIS. Uh, Michelle, nice to see you again. Thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you for to invite me. Listen, uh, you made a couple of statements to the committee that really grabbed people's attentions. And, and the first had to do with warnings in that you said, quote, uh, we can prove that every federal government from Mulroney to Trudeau has been compromised by agents of communist China. You go on to say that every government was informed at one point or another and that every mm-hmm. government chose to ignore these uh, ceaseless warnings. A lot to unpack there, but when you say that every government has been compromised, let's begin there. What do you mean by the fact that they were compromised? Well, CSIS have been capable to identify agents of influence, people who were working on behalf of the Chinese government in the inner circles of uh, every single prime minister. We saw also relationship built with the prime ministers that were sometimes... Uh, 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 questionable in terms of of what they were bringing for uh, Canada. And we've identified certain action and certain activities that literally sort of compromise the uh, uh, decision-making and the decision process of of the prime ministers. So these agents of influence were literally capable to uh, sort of affect the decision process and change the course of uh, the decision process decision process. And as you say, these governments, each and every one, was warned at one point or another. So why were these warnings uh, ignored? Well, we can even see some old uh, prime minister coming out of the uh, woodwork lately and and, and trying to diminish, again, uh, the importance of the warning that we gave. And the reason why? Well, we can identify only three reasons. Those agents of influence that I'm talking about that were capable to influence the decision process, 
or partisanship, as we've seen as well, or simply self-serving interests of certain individuals that uh, basically put their self-interest or their own interests ahead of the Canadian government or the, the Canadian nation. Now, you say currently there are at least 70% of China's diplomats here in Canada that are, that are essentially part Absolutely. of intelligence gathering work, and you say they should be sent home. That's a pretty high, high figure. How did you arrive to that? Well, again, we've, uh, we've been monitoring uh, activities of many countries, and we know that uh, diplomatic coverage is a cover for many uh, spy activities. In the case of China, we have a trade deficit with that country. In the U.S., we have, which is our big, the, 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 the number one economic partner. Well, when we compare the number of diplomats in place, China has twice as much, the double of, in, in numbers, and we have a trade deficit. Uh, uh, in recent years, they succeeded in convincing uh, the Harper government, for example, to sell uh, uh, an energy company in uh, Alberta for $15 billion, and we're not even capable to buy a corner store in China. So this inequity between the countries is sort of upset even more when we know that this authoritarian country is also supervising it and monitoring its uh, our Chinese community here and influencing them in going in certain direction. So we don't need that many Chinese diplomats here. They don't want to do business with us. They don't want to have a sort of a, a good relationship with us. Return them home. We don't need them. So, so why? Is China and the People's Republic engaged in this this level of intelligence gathering? Is it to destabilize Canada? Is it to serve as a backdoor to the United States? What is the overall purpose here? There's many there's many purposes. Uh, you name two of them to a certain extent. They want to be capable to sort of control the mechanism and the discourse of the Canadian government when it comes to China. They don't want to have anybody to have a, a, a negative say. Uh, so they want to control the discourse of anybody, dissident and government uh, uh, officials. But they want to also at the same time to get access to a lot of our resources. Canada is one of the prime targets for them. And unfortunately, for so many years, because they success, to successfully sorry, uh, been able to sort of manipulate some of our prime ministers, they were capable to sort of gain a lot of advantage uh, uh, for themselves. So their, their, their positioning here is really, really important. Give them access and opening to the Western world, give them access to our technology. Canada is a knowledge-based society. We lose an average of 100 to $120 billion per year in, in theft of uh, intellectual property. And a lot of that is, is lost to the Chinese. And we barely know anything about it because the government prevents CSUs to talk openly about it. So we need now to be very candid, very transparent, and realize that if we want to play in this international scene, we need to be much more armed with a, a much more robust national security and being conscious of the attack that has been launched against our democratic system. Uh, quickly losing time, but I do want to get your thoughts on one thing, because we know that Canada is looking to create this foreign agent registry. Uh, La Presse says it will, uh, a bill will be tabled either this summer or the fall. What do you make of that initiative? I think it's a good initiative, but we need to understand the limitation of it. 
Uh, it's only like the lobbyist registry. There is a lobbyist registry that exists as we speak. It doesn't prevent the lobbyists to have a private dinner with uh, uh, some uh, uh, officials and to do their, 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 their pushing as they want. So uh, we need to be informed and, and we need to know who is who. The uh, uh, elected officials or office, uh, the, the people in office must report and, and keep uh, uh, track of what they're discussing with these people. Uh, but it will have a limited, a limited uh, influence and, and, and capacity to, to prevent foreign interference. So we have to be very conscious of that. It's good, but not enough. Michel Junokatsuya, thank you for this. I appreciate the time. Always a pleasure. Thank you again. Well, let's continue the conversation with our journalists this week. Tonda McCharles is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, Bill Curry, the Ottawa Deputy Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, and Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Hello to the three of you. Hey there. Yeah. So listen, Tonda, I'm going to get you to start us out here because we just heard Michelle Junokatsu essentially say that CSIS gave warnings to successive governments uh, and they ignored those warnings about, about China and, and potential interference. Uh, what's your reaction to that? I mean, I think actually that we've heard the fact that CSIS has been giving warnings to governments for years. And in fact, I mean, back in 2010, we were hearing the same thing during the Harper government years. I think the fact that governments have been, uh, been warned that there are potential concerns around be it espionage or, or what have you, um, there are concerns that diplomats engage in things that are not always diplomatic, right? Uh, I think, you know, the, the more shocking thing that the ex-agent said was that 70% of the diplomats should be expelled and for spying. I mean, if CSIS has that kind of information and solid information that the government could act on, we might have expected to see some action. But look, it's a very delicate relationship. It's a relationship with a major global power that many, many businesses and sectors in Canada's economy do business with. So there are huge implications of a decision to expel diplomats. Mm -hmm. Now, we haven't expelled a Chinese diplomat since the 70s. So the fact that they've got one out, that's, you know, that was very interesting. But there weren't a lot of voices of opposition within the government. Everybody was just focused on, you know, doing it carefully to make sure there isn't escalating reprisals and blowback. Okay, well, Joanna, I'll get you to pick, pick up on that because, you know, you hinted a, a bit that we have this delicate relationship with China. Why ignore these warnings? If you're in government, you're hearing this from CSIS, why ignore it? I think um, part of it, to pick up on Tonda was saying, was the global power and the trade relationships and what the business community wants to see. Everyone remembers, I think, who covers politics back in 2006 when former Prime Minister Stephen Harper went to China on his first official visit. And he was rejected for a face-to-face -face meeting with the president because he refused to do it um, under the stipulation the conversation would only be about trade. And he famously said, we don't want, you know, Canadians don't want us to sort of heed to the almighty dollar. Um, we saw that line of thought evolve over, over the rest of his tenure as Prime Minister, uh, much more focus on trade. Um, there was criticism for not speaking out on human rights. Um, so, you know, he was sort of trying to oppose, contrast himself to the Team Canada approach of Kretchen and Martin. Um, and then we saw, I think, some pragmatism seek in uh, later on. Um, and then I think back to you know, the early days of Trudeau uh, when they were talking about a free trade agreement um, and they were trying to put human rights and gender and environment and, and, and uh, labor uh, into that and, and China balked and there was a sense that the Trudeau government was being naive and expecting these sorts of things too. So, so I think it's, it is a delicate relationship. I understand the caution. I think we've just got 
to a point now um, where a lot of these things are becoming public, um, including things that are in fact, very secret, um, becoming public, and there's a lot of pressure to do something about it finally. But uh, there's also, you can't ignore the fact that things are sh things have shifted in China. The regime mm -hmm. that came in in 2016 and under Xi Jinping changed uh, over time, and so the relationship that governments have and the work that diplomats conduct changes over time given their marching orders. So it's not always been the same problem is what I would argue. Um, and, and so I think that that's reflected in how some of the governments have to deal with this country. Yeah, and, and, one, and one way which this government is trying to deal with it, it, it they're, they're looking into a uh, foreign agent registry, although according mm -hmm. to La Presse and to Radio Canada, that uh, some bill will come out uh, either before or after summer. So, so Bill, talk to us about th this registry. How would it address, you know, Michelle Jinokatsuya has talked about a little bit before us, but how would it address the concerns being raised right now? Well, I think it, it would be, uh, you know, a step that they could take. It doesn't answer all of the questions. Uh, for instance, this is, this is a system that's already in place in Australia and the United States, and diplomats are exempt from that. So it's not going to tell you which consul general is, uh, you know, which one's a spy. That's not, that's not what it's <laughs> going to be. It's, uh, if, if you look at uh, the U.S. database, which anybody can go online, it's quite interesting in terms of how detailed it is. It's even got things like Alberta's Canada uh, Energy Office that lobbies in the United States for on behalf of the energy sector. You know, that is a foreign agent. Canada, in this case, Alberta operating in the United States. So that's the kind of thing that's there. It's also got a lot of people um, who are consultants, former politicians, former staffers. So people you would see on panel shows like this and elsewhere, uh, former cabinet ministers. You know, are they getting money from a foreign government? Well, at the, in Canada, that's not immediately obvious. Now you could look it up. So... It would be helpful for journalists when we're talking to sources, uh, you know, who's who's funding this person, yep. um, you know, consumers of news. If they see somebody making something, making a statement on TV, they can look it up. You know, mm -hmm. who's who's who have they received money from? You can see the details. So it's an extra bit of transparency, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really get at the question that we've had in the news the last few days about, you know, which diplomats are acting, uh, you know, beyond a traditional diplomatic role in venturing into spying. Yeah, do, you, do you list anyone who is employed or paid by the Chinese government, or do you list anyone who's controlled or paid or doing any work or lobbying for a state-owned agency? And is it which countries? Mm -hmm. Is it every country that has any state-owned agency that has, uh, or enterprise that has people working on their behalf in this country, it's pretty complex. It's pretty fraught with all kinds of uh, questions for, you know, the drafter of that legislation. Yeah, so again, we're now expecting it either before or after the summer break, so close eyes on that. But, you know, while you're here, I also want to talk to you in particular, Tonda, because uh, earlier this week you, you wrote a report about an internal government document that essentially uh, critiqued the response to the fall of Kabul right. and getting Afghans who helped Canadian forces out of that country. And part of that report uh, was essentially pointing the finger at, at government, that it was hard to get direction from government because essentially, uh, this is how I read it, they were too concerned about the election that they called on the same day. I mean, it doesn't expressly say that. What it does say, however, is it, it, it documents the very huge challenge of the government trying to coordinate all the responses that needed to be coordinated, both immigration measures, who do you let in, who can't you let in, the security screening of it, the DND evacuation, what the soldiers on the ground in Kabul were doing, and, uh, you know, foreign affairs interest in trying to deal with the diplomats and the embassy. And, and so it documented sort of a whole, the whole buildup from, say, the year before to the fall of Kabul, which was on, a, on election day. And how, frankly, to me, the, there was a big, you know, I was shocked at 
how late everything did come together and how much chaos there was inside government about trying to pull these things together. And then once the election was called, I mean, you will all remember, like two days before the election was called, they rolled out new immigration measures to bring in Afga uh, Afghans. Um, they had expanded a program beyond just uh, locally engaged staff, which they announced in July, to all the interpreters and, and workers and contractors who'd helped. But in the end, it was a mad scramble on the day and after, and the days after Kabul fell to get vulnerable people out of, and uh, people at risk out of Kabul. The election complicated, because you'll remember the whole first week of it was dominated by these questions and those pictures of people falling and chasing planes and falling off and, you know, violence mm -hmm. at the airport. The election, you know, the ministers were still minister, even while the government was in a caretaker mode. And they were also constantly trying to deal with things. But there's no question it complicated the whole effort. And there was a very uh, lack of a paper trail to document the decisions that the government was making on the fly and what was a valid decision and what wasn't. Now, looking back, it's sometimes hard to tell. You, there are lawsuits going on this very day to examine, you know, well, who did have authority to get put Canada's stamp on authorities to get out of Kabul and come into Canada. These are very litigious questions now. And, uh, you know, th that report took a hard, cold look at how the government didn't anticipate early enough and how it responded on the fly. Well, I, I remember when, when Kabul fell, and, I, and it was for days after, it was this, how, how do we cover an election all of a sudden when this real crisis is happening in Kabul? It, it's, mm -hmm. it seemed, you know... It, it, a bit insensitive, yeah. considering what people were going through on the and ground. they were grilled every day, weren't they? Yeah. Just constantly. Well, I was going to ask, because you were here at the time. Yeah, and I, and I think it did feel a bit surreal and really dissonant, and I think that was ramped up by the fact that Canada had had this, this presence there, right? Um, there are global crises that are happening all the time during federal elections all the time. And this one struck because there was a clear sort of accountability line um, between Canada and responsibility there. And I, and I think it's really also really impossible to separate it from some of the feelings of, of veterans and other people who had, who had worked there, um, now feeling like their time there, which was obviously not easy for them, had been pointless, right? Um, and maybe a sense of uh, guilt for the people they had worked with, leaving them behind. So that sort of became part of the conversation. Speaking with all humility, I think a lot of journalists felt the same way and, and were sort of involved in, in trying to reconcile mm -hmm. that and work with that behind the scenes while also covering an election, yes. holding the government to account um, for actions involving our work, which is a complicated thing to navigate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so that sort of brought it to the forefront in, in a way that other global crises may not have been. Um, but yeah, when I read Tonda's story, like it just, that whole notion of them seeming caught off guard and the whole election forcing them into caretaker mode while also them recognizing how politically sensitive this was and how terribly afraid they were clearly of this running off the rails and ruining what they thought was going to be a good election for them um, was, was clearly at play. I, I think, you know, the just from what I was remember hearing at the time, the public service saying, like, this is caretaker, this is what we do, and then the ministers sort of wading in and maybe some lines of what you could say when maybe got crossed without the support of the regular um, machinery of governance that's normally there yeah. um, without caretaker mode. So it was just a very complicated time. Yeah, and it was it, it was hard to, to to delve into a political when it's like there, there should be you know covering this very human story. It's like what do, what do politics matter? There are people that are very much concerned for their well-being and their lives. You know the, the image of the mother throwing her baby over the airport gate mm -hmm. to try to save her baby. Uh, Bill, when you when when you looked at Tonda's report, what what went through your mind? I was struck a bit by the recommendation. One of the recommendations, mm -hmm. which is that the government should focus on situations that are not necessarily probable but high risk 
And you would think, well, isn't that what we have a public service for? Like, like this should be, you know, whether it's earthquakes or this kind of situation, yeah. you know, we need to have plans for things that may not be likely, but they could happen. And, you know, when that happens, then there should be a clear plan because clearly, uh, I mean, absolutely, it, uh, it caught people off guard, not just Canada, elsewhere, but mm -hmm. a lot of unusual things happen. I mean, our, our colleagues of the Globe have been writing about the situation with a senator, Marilyn McFedrin, who was just issuing all these pieces of paper That's to people and, uh, yeah. you know, saying this is official government document, you can come to Canada, and they were not official documents. Except that that's a point of contention because they were so desperate to get people mm -hmm. out. It did come from a chief of staff to the defense minister from Global Affairs. So really, I think a lot of people, that's the other thing, like a lot of people were making good faith efforts to try and get mm -hmm. people out, right? But that chaos probably shouldn't, shouldn't be the norm. That's not tenable as a, a government operating procedure. Right. Yeah, but the result of which is that there are people that are stuck in, in yeah. limbo as to whether or not they should yeah. be coming to this country. And, 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 and actually, I mean, to Bill's point, you know, we we have seen, an, again, the government caught off guard by events in Sudan, but most Western governments did not mm -hmm. expect that clash to erupt as it did. And what I, I accept that maybe they were surprised, but what I don't accept is that, you know, one of the clear recommendations from this report was have a comms plan, talk to uh, the public, let them know what our assets on the ground, our military soldiers are doing to get people out. We have not had that kind of transparency. We've had the odd briefing, but try and get an answer out of what the ships and the planes were doing at the fall of Sudan when people were being murdered in Khartoum. You know, we just didn't have, that lesson wasn't learned. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, too. That, I mean, right after that election, Harjit Sajjan was no longer defense minister. I mean, all those emails yes. flowing through his office. He wasn't office. reading his emails. <laughs> yeah, yes, <exactly. laughs> Which we found out recently yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, that is the time for this weekend, but really appreciate it. So to Tonda and to Bill and to Joanna, thank you for the time today. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. We are nearing the halfway point in the Alberta election campaign, but it has been hard for many people to focus on politics right now, given the more pressing concern of wildfires burning in the province. Now, there has been some grumblings that voting day should be pushed back. But for now, May 29 is still voting day in Alberta, which means the campaigns are still moving forward, though perhaps differently than originally planned. To check in on the Alberta campaign, we're now joined by Janet Brown, pollster and principal at Janet Brown Opinion Research. Janet, really good to have you on the program. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, here we are about two weeks into this uh, four-week campaign, uh, but topping the news in Alberta, as I said, are the wildfires, understandably, uh, and not the election. So I I'm wondering, have the wildfires affected the kind of attention provincial, uh, the provincial campaign would usually be getting right now? Well, I think definitely the fires are the top news story, um, and not to uh, not not to make uh, not to, to minimize them at all, uh, but they're in a, a a specific part of the province. So um, you know, the vast number of voters are not directly affected uh, by it. So um, yes, it sort of uh, made the uh, election situation a little bit unique. Um, but the election is still going forward uh, full steam, I would say. Mm -hmm. But still, you know, the wildfires, I guess, from a political front, they have afforded Danielle Smith this, this opportunity to show leadership in action. Uh, has that helped the UCP leader? Well, yes, yeah, so she has been able to show uh, herself in action. She has been able to show herself in a positive light. But I think for most Albertans, the fire response really is um, something that they see the government as being responsible for. So, you know, it's not the premier who's going out there and fighting these fires. 
Um, it's firefighters. It's it's the administration. It's emergency preparedness services um, that are really kicking into gear here. And the premier has a role to play for sure. Um, but it, but but she's a figurehead role. And so I think a lot of people aren't asking themselves whether the premier is doing a good job. They're asking themselves whether the government's doing a good job. Um, was this government prepared? Was some of the decisions this government made in the past around you know, funding and that sort of uh, stuff, are, are, are those things helping or hurting right now? Um, but I think in terms of people saying, oh, look how great she's doing with the fire, I don't think that in itself is going to change too many votes um, because uh, be, because when when these things happen, it's the entire government that kicks into gear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, add to that, I guess, if we're talking about leadership here, is that old video of uh, Danielle Smith resurfa- resurfacing this week, comparing uh, Vaxay people to Germans who supported Hitler. And it does make me wonder about leadership and just how much of this election boils down to that one issue. Well, the, I mean, the, these were shocking comments that she made. And you know, it, it was only a couple years ago. It was 20, 2021. So, um, you know, to, to make it seem like ancient history, it's not exactly that. Um, you know, she said disparaging things about people who went out and got vaccinated, which represents 70 to 80 percent of Albertans. Um, she said that she was not going to wear the poppy. And a lot of people are upset that she politicized the poppy. So, so these statements are very troubling to people. Um, but, you know, for the NDP, they've been harping on these things. They've been running a, sort of a, a, an attack ad campaign against um, Danielle Smith. So these things are, are hurting Smith, undermining her credibility, undermining her trust. Um, but I think they've also sort of dominated the narrative and it's prevented the NDP from really sort of putting forth a, a positive narrative. So you've got a lot of Albertans out there right now who are feeling uncertain about the judgment of Danielle Smith but not feeling confident enough that they know what the NDP platform holds for them to be able to switch over to the NDP. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned platform, and I, I do want to talk a bit about Calgary because we've seen some announcements uh, that would affect Calgary uh, in, in the future being made this past week. But of course, Calgary identified as the main battleground right now. Just how many seats are actually in play in Calgary? And if you will, put, put that into some context for people outside of Alberta. Well, let me back up even further. There's Mm -hmm. 87 seats uh, provincially. 20 of those seats are in Edmonton, 26 are in Calgary, and the rest, 41, are outside of the two major cities. Now, um, I would be very shocked if the NDP didn't win every single seat in Edmonton and and a number of seats in the surrounding area around Edmonton. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the UCP won most of the seats outside of Edmonton the two major cities, maybe with the exception of places like like Lethbridge and Banff, Kananaskis and, and, and that sort of thing. So that's why we talk about this election being battleground Calgary. Um, you know, it's shaping up to be a close election, but only because it's shaping up to be close in Calgary. Um, I did a poll for CBC. Uh, that poll was conducted just before Easter. We released it just after Easter. So it's about a month old now. Um, But at that time, I saw the NDP with the lead and I saw the NDP in a position um, to probably win, you know, 18 out of the 26 seats in Calgary. But when you do the math, that's not enough. 18 seats in Calgary, 20 seats in um, in Edmonton. That only brings them to 38. You need 44 seats for a majority. You need more like 47, 48 seats for a clear majority. So um, the the NDP has to practically run the board here in Calgary and pick up some other seats outside of the two major cities. And and, um, 
even if they win the popular vote, it's going to be difficult for them to win all the seats they need to form a majority. Okay, difficult. But what ridings will you be watching out for then, perhaps outside the, the two big cities, where the NDP might be competitive? Well, outside the major cities, um, uh, the city of Lethbridge, um, it's in southern Alberta, which tends to be quite conservative, but Lethbridge is this little bastion of progressivism. So they have an NDP MLA down there now, and it's, and it's widely expected, there's two ridings in Lethbridge, it's widely expected that the NDP could get both. Um, in Red Deer, um, I think the UCP has the advantage, but people are looking to see if the NDP could maybe pick up one seat in Red Deer. Um, in northern Alberta, the riding of Lesser Slave Lake, um, it has been NDP in the past. It's got a big Indigenous population. People are watching that one. And finally, Banff Kananaskis, a very progressive riding, um, and uh, and that one could be on the on the, the the ridings to watch as well. Well, as you say, the elections campaign still going strong right now. So, Janet, thank you for the update at this point. Uh, happily to say that uh, you and I, I think are, are going to speak when we do get to Calgary at the end of the month. But for now, thank you for that. Thank you very much. And that is our program for today. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Have a great weekend.